Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor Charles J. McMillan, Professor of Strategic Management and International Business at York University in Toronto. Charles is the author of nine books and monographs related to international business and global management, and has written and lectured extensively on globalization, bilateral and multilateral trade agreements, strategic management, corporate governance, science policy, knowledge management and diffusion, and management development. Active in public affairs, Professor McMillan has also served as a senior policy advisor to Canadian prime ministers, working on trade agreements, regional development, Pacific Rim strategies, energy policy, science and technology strategies, and centers of excellence. He now also consults widely to governments, multinationals, and international organizations around the world. Charles, it is a pleasure to speak to you. Great to be with you. So in a recent article, you explored some of the reasons why organizations fail and consider in particular three levels at which organization failure can occur. So perhaps let's start with that very question. Why do organizations fail? Well, I come from a medical family, as it turns out. Uh, my knowledge of medicine is pretty abysmal. But if you look at um, medicine and medical education, one of the pioneers uh, who actually died at Oxford, who was a Canadian, and he was uh, a leading dean at McGill University uh, Medical School, um, he was a pathologist. So on a regular basis, medical students and the medical profession um, look at sick patients and try to assess what's wrong and how to make them well. And of course, progress in medical science is stunning. But sometimes things happen and the patient dies. The medical students and medical profession are very good uh, at understanding pathology, understanding why something happened, uh, internal functions of the body or whatever. Business schools and, biz and management in general aren't so good at that. We don't have systems to monitor how things are going on internally in the organization. Uh, it's easy to blame external events, but our studies of organizational failure show that it's internal events and the accumulation of errors, mistakes, the lack of learning uh, that accumulate and lead to failure. And then we set up a model which I could talk about, and it's stunning. Very big organizations fail. Um, most people know Mighty General Motors, which is one to uh, dominate the United States. Most people that, you know, over time have had a camera, Kodak, you know, that actually produced the first digital camera, also failed. And uh, in Europe, there's all kinds of examples. Um, in Britain, for example, British Leyland, the British motorcycle industry, uh, that once dominated not only uh, Britain, but parts of Europe, also failed. And so, Failure is a really important thing for practicing managers because in our research, there are a lot of lessons that managers can see and there's signals like a patient, a doctor dealing with a patient, you're dealing with the symptoms and, and therefore you have to correct the symptoms. 
Otherwise, you're going to have accumulation uh, of factors that are going to lead to failure. So if we think about the, the life cycle of organizations, is it is failure at some point inevitable or can, in theory, organizations just keep on going forever? Oh, I think organizations, uh, you know, can go on, uh, but they have mechanisms to correcting uh, their mistakes or failures or whatever. You know, there's lots of examples that you get this in marketing courses and, and production courses, product life cycle, technology life cycle, organizational life cycle. And there's no reason that at some point, particularly at the organizational level with, you know, good market share, satisfied customers, that an organization is going to uh, fail. If you look at really well-managed companies, they have built in mechanisms to make sure that they don't fail. When Jack Welch, for example, was at General Motors, he actually had a website that he, he asked the employee to visit on a regular basis. On, on failure. And then um, Jeff Wilmold changed that. And um, uh, I think that's a mistake. S successful companies, and, and if you go to Japan, for example, there are companies that are Mitsui or whatever that have 500 years of, of, um, of business. France and Germany have a stunning number of successful companies that date, date back to the uh, 17th century. And, and uh, even some of the ones that are very popular Carrefour, for example, that a Canadian company tried to buy, there are signals of failure within Carrefour, represented by share price, accumulating debt, rivals taking over certain elements of the market share. So, you know, practicing managers have tools, but they've got to listen to them. And as you know, one of the methods uh, popular in the consulting industry is benchmarking. So in the car industry, uh, essentially, there's Toyota and the rest. Toyota is the only car company, car manufacturing, that is in you know conventional engines, internal combustion engines with gas, or diesel, or electric, or battery, or hybrid, and the changes taking place. Toyota is the only company with operational excellence that's in in all six methods of propulsion. You know, there's a lot of talk now in Europe about electronic cars um, with a battery system not unlike a, a Tesla. The reality is Tesla is a niche player, produces only 600,000 vehicles, which sounds like a lot, but it's nowhere near Toyota that produces 10 million or Volkswagen that produces 10 million cars and trucks or even General Motors. So companies have these signals, but often they don't want to listen to them. And benchmarking is one of the tools that gives signals about potential failure, maybe simple failure. So the Detroit car industry, for example, just quality issues. You know, when you turn the key, something doesn't work. And this was a, opened a, a window for the Japanese because they have really listened to ironically American consultants in perfecting quality control. There's all kinds of other reasons why the Japanese car industry, particularly Toyota has been, or Honda has been so successful, uh, in fuel, including fuel consumption. And so if you look in Paris, for example, Boston, Toronto, where I live, you know, all the new taxis, they're Toyotas or Toyota Camry. If you look at a Ford hybrid, it's Toyota technology. So when you look at companies, there are a lot of tools to help managers 
see the symptom of failure. And then the question is, what are the processes uh, to avoid uh, catastrophic, catastrophic failure? And on that then, are, in your opinion, some companies more prone to failure than, than others? Is there something wired into the DNA that, that makes some companies a little bit more susceptible? Or is it perhaps not following those uh, steps that you've mentioned? Well, I mean, we, we can't ignore the fact, uh, and COVID pandemic has accelerated that, um, a lot of companies were retail, for example, were bricks and mortar. And now the acceleration of digital and online delivery and online ordering and payment systems, um, you know, the last year has been made more progress in the digital world than, you know, potential five years. The fact is that technology or knowledge does change dramatically. And these Certain kinds of technology, um, you know, is dramatic. And if you're not prepared for it, that tells you a lot. So, for example, telephones. Most of the world, and especially the developed world, had copper-based online systems uh, with a phone connected with a copper wire. Then, you know, the chip, the semiconductor or whatever, changed all that. Started with Nokia, which actually came from a pulp and paper company mobile phones. So if you're stuck in the landline telephone business, your days are numbered. You just have to switch. So in in United States, for example, most of the car companies uh, or the tire companies for cars and trucks were by supply. And then in Europe, particularly with Michelin or Pirelli, they designed the radial tire which is more expensive, but it gave far better mileage, far better safety, far better whatever. And the old bias ply is a dead duck. So externally, there is issues of, of technology and in some areas, dramatic. And if you're not up on those and you're not reinvesting into R&D and knowledge-based workers and all that, your days are numbered. And, and uh, even the best of management can't do, you know, if you've got the wrong technologies. It, it makes me think of those books by Jim Collins and uh, and others back 20 or so years ago, 30 years ago, about good to great and so on, where they tried to you know, distill down the, the key lessons of successful companies. If we perhaps take that recipe in reverse, and there were some flaws with that recipe, but if we take that in reverse, are there ways that we can perhaps predict whether an organization is more likely to fail or not? Well, those are good examples. Um, in search of excellence, there's all kinds of uh, whatever. And unfortunately, management is subject to these quick fixes uh, kinds of things. But you, you, know, you mentioned the life cycle idea. Well, if you run a soccer team, professional soccer team, or in Ireland, a rugby team, and you have really talented, athletic, bright, in a brain sense, young athletes, 10 years from now, a athlete that is 20 is going to be 30. And 20 years later, he's going to be 40. So humans are subject to aging. So your recruitment process with knowledge organization 
is that you need a combination. You need older workers and older management who have experience and have accumulated knowledge about some of the stupid errors of the past. But you have younger people who, and this is certainly true with the political system as well, you need younger people who are athletic if you're talking sports or, or the Cirque du Soleil, for example, gymnasts and ballet companies and, and uh, orchestras and whatever. And, and they, they kind of break the rules and they're looking for new ideas. And so you have to instill new ideas, often grafted to the old ideas. And that's why organizations survive. There's a natural process of drift with aging and you need mechanisms of renewal. And most of the successful renewal things, it may be technology, it may be R&D or whatever, but may, it mostly comes from renewal of people. And, and it's a tricky thing in companies or in governments or in universities to balance old experience, but less creative perhaps, and young, creative, but inexperienced. And that's the balancing act in management today. And that's interesting when you put it like that, because if you think about so many of the tech startups, there seems to be a real bias towards youth at the expense of the, the older, more experienced uh, cohort of, of potential employees. Does that possibly highlight why there is such a failure rate amongst startups that if they maybe had a slightly more diverse employee base, then they may be able to learn from, from the experience of others? Well, that you know, uh, it's not just startups, but take small businesses. I think in today's world, and we are in a global world, never mind the anti-globalist or whatever, um, because globalization with the internet and all these other things means your direct competitor may come from Japan or if you're in Ireland or Britain or Germany, your competitor can come from anywhere today in all sorts of things, whether it's manufacturing services um, or whatever. Some of the, the mechanisms, I think, for example, small business, often you need not only the owner who is the CEO, but to to build market share and find new customers, he's got to be away from the the company, traveling, whatever, on a regular basis. So you need somebody at home, possibly a younger people person, uh, managing the day-to-day -day stuff. And small business increasingly need external advisors. They don't have to be boards because boards sometimes get into a fiduciary responsibility. But it's amazing what small business, you know, once a month or whatever, brings in a couple of people and they chat about how's business, who's the competitors, what's the technology like, and they just provide insights uh, that affect the business, but they affect potential competition. And I think this is a new form of management. Um, you know, the, sometimes consultants call this ecosystem or whatever. And I'm just thinking in today's world, you know, Everything is constantly changing. My One of my favorite words, which I tell everybody I meet, is Kaizen. A Japanese word means constant improvement. And this is true for individuals. Uh, it's true for managers. It's true for board members. 
and you know the medical profession the scientist profession you're always learning some people think that they finish high school they finish community college or university their education is over that those days are gone forever and that applies to politicians or whatever it's constant learning constant improvement and uh, if that's kind of the model over time you listen to a lot of people including of course listening to your own workers absolutely and and taking into account those different perspectives is is absolutely vital if we if we think about some of the better known failures and you mentioned some of them earlier on are, are there key things that we should learn from them or, or or is it actually something that we can learn from are are we doomed to repeat other people's mistakes and do we have to really experience it ourselves in order to learn from it when it comes to organizational failure well uh, I'll give you a personal example. Uh, my first car was an Austin Mini, bought it in Alberta. And um, so if you look at the Mini and you look at the turn signal, there was a green light, no arrow. So it didn't point either to the right or to the left. And I thought that was strange. Then I moved to Britain and um, I noticed that most of the older cars were British made and most of the new cars were made on the continent. Uh, mostly French and German, or Japan. And of course, that accelerated because British Leyland, you know, got in serious trouble. But I was studying in Japan, and I was studying the just-in-time system, and the Toyota system, and all that. And I gave a lecture, um, the case actually was for 2000, back in the 80s, you know, towards future planning and all that. But I explained what the Japanese were doing, but particularly what Toyota was doing. And one of the students, MBA class, stood up and was quite annoyed and said, I don't like this kind of criticism from you on British management. And I said, well, I'm not the ugly American. I'm, I'm, I'm not an American, I'm a Canadian. But he said, I'm not saying, you know, follow Canadian practice. I'm talking about Japanese practice. More importantly, you work for Jaguar. You should be absorbing these ideas like bloody crazy. And the students all stood up, gave me a standing ovation. So you get a, a view in all kinds of organizations, including in universities and academia. People just don't want to listen. And I think in today's world, we need better systems to get feedback, production feedback. Um, and, and of course, the technology there, the stunning technology customer feedback, you know, every in a retail organization, Carrefour, for example, in France, food retailer or uh, Tesco, for example, every product has a barcode. And when they ring up the sales at the end of the day, they know precisely what products sold and what products didn't sell. But organizations differ in terms of how much do they actually understand what products sold or didn't sell? And can they identify what customers bought stuff as compared to certain organizations, uh, certain customers, avoided buying stuff. Walmart, you know, very controversial company, but extremely successful, has a data mining system that is nothing short of stunning to precisely understand why uh, some products sell and why some products don't sell. And they link that to the demographics. That's why retailers often give you a loyalty card if you, if you shop with cash. But a credit card, you know, is the equivalent. And they're trying to shape your 
demographics, young, old, rich, poor, educated, a mother, you know, buying pampers for a new baby, but you're going to buy other products like, like uh, baby powder or whatever. And this feedback mechanism, the best political parties are very good at this as well, by the way, in data mining, but there are these well-known tools improved by the way with cell phones and the digital world but a lot of managers don't want to use those and and that is a problem when i listen to what you're saying there it sounds to me as though there are also some really important lessons for companies that are seeking to innovate all of those things you're talking about feedback listening data mining, understanding the customer and, and having that diversity within. Is that a fair comment? Oh, absolutely. And and you look at the the better managed companies, including the Toyotas or the Apples or whatever, it's stunning their mechanisms to do just that, including, you know, uh, bringing in outsiders, uh, giving workers a sabbatical, you know, to travel abroad and, and think and, and, and uh, see other products. The Japanese used to, you know, when, when Japanese managers took holidays, they particularly visit the United States, but they didn't go to the beaches. They made went to the beaches to play golf or whatever, but they also visited stores and 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 looked at American-made products and tried to figure out, well, can we make this better? And there are all kinds of examples of that. So, I think the the real lessons of failure uh, have as much to do with the really successful stores. You know, you said good to great with Jim Collins and, and, and Search of Excellence or whatever. It is stunning how the best companies have these mechanisms uh, to constantly improve. They, they, don't, they don't accept the status quo. So if we were to, uh, I guess, pull it together, if someone listening was a, a practicing manager within an organization, what are some of the key lessons that you would suggest they should take from, from our conversation about how they should consider failure and perhaps work with failure in terms of their organization? Well, we had a model, um, you know, that, that it's fairly simple to understand. Simple errors and screw-ups lead to simple failure. And some of those can be corrected. But if you look at production or if you look at marketing and you find that certain clients are avoiding you or they're not buying again, or you're finding that the products, so in a retail store, uh, certain products aren't selling, and that can be for food stores as well, that's a sign something's wrong. Now, you can avoid that because other products are booming and so you don't have to worry. It's not a cash flow thing. It's it's a, a simple problem that you know you accept but over time go back to your life cycle idea if you find certain things are taking place that you don't like that means you have a coordination problem that one department isn't talking to the other department the marketing people the salespeople are want a booming business and and satisfy their, their customers but then they have to deliver and then there's a problem in the production side and the production side is, is a shortage of money because they need raw materials. So it becomes a finance problem. The, that lack of coordination and uh, at the at the operational level uh, can lead to over time to complex failure. And when the organization isn't 
aligned within among departments, the silo effect, something is more serious. You see this at universities, uh, faculties don't talk to each other. Departments within a faculty, a business school, you know, an agricultural school, even a medical school, they're not talking to each other. Everything has to be aligned. Well, if that's the case, and this goes on over time, that you're tolerating simple failures, even more complex failures, then something can be very serious wrong. And some of the examples of failure, the Challenger aircraft that went to space, it took a lot of investigation to find out. And it was a simple thing of the O-rings weren't fitted properly. And so they leaked. And of course in space, air, air gain, get, they got heading back to earth, it caught fire. You see this in the car industry. A car today, uh, doesn't matter who makes it, is somewhere between five and 10,000 parts and components. One small failure can lead to disaster over time. It may be simple, a, a fitting of a hose that affects the brake. And then with continued usage, you know, it breaks and that leads to catastrophic failure. So today, you know, it's systems thinking, it's how the pieces fit together and Managers have to understand that, but it means they have to have systems in the organization where they talk to each other. The quality management at, at Japan now calls six million, used in a lot of companies around the world, including Europe and, and Swiss and the, and the French and the Germans are very good at this now at all. But you know, the old quality control system pioneered in the United States with American consultants leads down to the individual worker or groups of workers trying to figure out you know, what caused these defects? What caused these errors? And the workers are trained, you know, to assess these things. And and so it's, it's a highly decentralized system that works up. And, you know, more organizations, academics live in a knowledge world and, you know, there's not so much hierarchy. In a lot of organizations, and government is the worst perhaps, it's hierarchy. And if you're down at the bottom, you, you feel you don't have a voice. So you stay on, but it's, you know, you're psychologically dependent. So you stay on, uh, but you don't have a voice. And you know, it's a live and left live world. Part of the issue in this failure game is a very important issue is training. I don't mean academic training. I mean systems to train workers. It may involve mentors. So the famous saying in medical schools that, you know, uh, if you're a first year medical school, you, you have a professor who is your mentor, maybe the whole year, and he tracks you all the time. Some universities have mentors uh, on the academic side, on the career side, and on the course selection side. But training is central to these kinds of organizations. And, you know, around the world, we live in a knowledge world. And that means constant training and, um, you know, Lexus, for example, uh, Toyota Lexus, the workers get anywhere between, it's stunning, 30 days training a year to 50 days training a year. And when their Lexus is setting up a new plant abroad, so there's one not far uh, from Toronto, the new workers, Canadians, and in Canada, a lot of uh, the new workers are Im new immigrants, they spend six months in Japan as part of their training 
um, to learn the processes at Toyota factories in Japan. So this is the world we live in, and um, part of the expense of running a company is devoted to the wide sense of training uh, and decentralization to listen to people. Fantastic insights. Professor uh, Charles McMillan of York University in Toronto, thank you very much for your time. Great to be with you. song electronic beat time and dream sequence by lorenzo's music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license